Vintage Sand. Hello, 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 Vintage Sand listeners. All I'm sure we're up to 20 now, so I'm going to say hello to all 20 of you. Thank you once again for tuning in for episode 46. Good God, guys. We're approaching 50. We have to figure out... I still say we should do the, a Torn Curtain episode. Devote episode 50 entirely to Torn Curtain. Torn Curtain, torn apart. All we need is... A sponsor. <laughs> Someday we will get a sponsor. A sponsor. <laughs> that means we have to watch it again. No, it's and I don't want to watch it again. That's true. I haven't seen it since 1966 Oof. at age 11, and I hated it. I'm then. sure it's aged well. <laughs> but um, you, you know, we're, we're going to just crying out to be restored. Oh God. Yeah, it's uh, well. Anyway, but we'll, we're going to do something big for 50 anyway. But for this episode, we are sort of jumping on. On the Turner Classic Movie Bandwagon, and uh, they've jumped on ours. Well, they've jumped on ours before. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, great final movies of directors. Yes. You know, we're still talking to our lawyers about that one. But um, we are going to focus on the centennial of Warner Brothers, our episode called The House That Jack Built, although he did it with his brothers. And if you think about it, it's really one of the most amazing things that that handful of companies that ran Hollywood, say, in the late 20s are still basically the companies that run Hollywood. It's, it's remarkable. DreamWorks is the new big one. But, you know, yeah. it's still, you know, of course there were mergers then, you know, the MGM was created by a merger and Fox was created, Paramount was created, Universal was created by mergers, but, and all of that is happening today and there's, you know, Discovery just bought HBO Warner and it's all this complicated stuff, but it's still Warner Brothers, it's still Universal, it's still Columbia, it's still Fox, although Fox is a subsidiary now, Disney runs everything now, but it's, it's, I, probably can't name too many businesses that look pretty much the same in terms of the structure of control as they did, say, you know, 90 years ago in the uh, late 20s, early um, early 30s. And while Warner Brothers, as I said, is kind of now a part of Time Warner, which is now a part of Discovery, blah, 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 it's still very much the powerful and influential studio that the eponymous brothers uh, open on April 4th, 1923. Someone should make a movie just about the Warner's brothers. Fascinating. Just, 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 it's an unbelievable story. Uh, all Almost of, Shakespearean. Well, now, but now two of them died like the night of the opening of the jazz singer, right? Or, two, or, or something like, yeah, yeah, I mean, Jack, it was basically it Jack's was ba- studio. basically him. In, in the golden years. And they, they like all the other studios. Did they die of natural causes? Or was Jack trying to get... Power? I wouldn't be... They just I couldn't, wouldn't put it past <laughs> No, they just couldn't stand Jolson. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, you ain't heard nothing yet. Oh. <laughs> Exactly. Or maybe Ruby Keeler said hello. <laughs> we know how much Michael loves Miss Keeler, so. So, um, in this episode, we are going to celebrate, as I said, Warner Centennial. Um, and we thought it's kind of silly to try to come up with our three favorite films by the studio because it's such an incredible volume of work. Plus, it's not just. Warner Brothers produced, Warner's distributes also, and right. these relationships, they, they co-produce and co-distribute, so it's kind of complicated, so we each came up with three films for which the studio was either producer, the main distributor, or both, and these are films that are not necessarily the best films that came out of Warner Brothers, I mean, we're not going to talk about Casablanca, right. because that's such an obvious 
uh, choice. Um, but they're the ones that had the most impact on us, or a strong impact on us. And we also, um, for your sake, dear listeners, tried to avoid films that we've already talked about a lot in detail. So one other thing you're going to hear in this episode is us talking about films that we have not talked much about before. So let's let the wheel spin round and round. Mikey, you want to kick it off? What's your first? The Letter, uh, from 1940, directed by uh, William Wyler, uh, from uh, the Somerset Mom uh, play, which he adapted from a short story. And um, screenplay by Howard Koch. Oh, can't go wrong. Music by Max Steiner. Yeah, well. Well, Max Steiner. I mean, he. I mean, I know. I know what you're saying. He could be very melodramatic and heavy-handed, but music was always really good. Yeah. It's just that he was just. It was, was overused. Was, he was so heavy-handed sometimes, but also, I'm sorry to interject. At that no, time. Interject. At yes. that time. Almost all the studios had wall-to-wall music. Yes, like the '30s, especially like the late '30s and early '40s. Mm-hmm. It's, there are very few movies where music is is used sparingly. Good time for Franz Waxman and Dmitri Tiomkin and that yeah. cr- Miklos Rosen yeah. and that crew. Um, yeah. This is the second collaboration between uh, William Wyler and, and Betty Davis. Davis. The first one was two years earlier uh, with Jezebel, Jezebel, which won uh, Betty Davis her. Uh, Second Oscar, which to be blunt, she's very good in it. I'm not a fan of the movie. Her yeah, first Jezebel? was dangerous. Yeah. Dangerous. Yeah, yes. Right. So of course, that was the same year as when she did *Of Human Bondage*, which kind of made her famous. That was yeah. the movie that made her. Yeah. And um, anyway, and unlike most other actresses, she relished in playing bad, bad yeah. girls. Yes. And in this one, she's very bad. Yeah, <laughs> and um, it's. I'm not going to talk about the story. I was going to ask. I I haven't read the original story. Oh, it's it, different. It, and that's what I was wondering yes. about because you had the code then. Yes. So anybody who was bad had to be bad. To and it yep. is. It is. Because I saw the earlier uh, sound. There's a. This is the third version. It was a silent really? movie. Yeah, it was a silent movie. I think in 1917. And then at Film Forum some years ago, I saw it was one of the first talkies uh, with Gene Eagles. Wow, the great Gene wow. Eagles. Yes. <laughs> and in that version, which was pre-code, I'm not going to tell the story, but it's basically about a woman who kills her lover. Right. Uh, and she pretends that he was trying to rape her. She pretends that he was trying to rape her. And how a letter uh, comes into uh, her lover's widow's hands and uh, it's basically a blackmail story in the original nothing happens to the main character she just lives with the husband she tells the husband uh, her husband that she still loves the man that she shot and they just decide to live in a loveless sexless marriage in uh, malaysia where this takes place where she feels like a prisoner Man, can anyone do literary adaptations better than Weiler? I don't think so. I, I, not I totally then. agree. I mean... Yeah, not. I think that's a good point. Not then. Yeah. I gotta tell you, for, for my money, Weiler was the only director that I can think of offhand who really could do good dramas in the 30s. Most of the dramas in the 30s, not all, but most, I find either heavy-handed 
or just overacted. Like, or overacted. Yeah, I was going to say that my biggest problem with a lot of the dramas, not the comedies. No, 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 no. Dramas of the early 30s yes. is that even though the story or screenplay might be really good and it's and you can see visually that the, the director really knows what they're doing mm -hmm. is it but some of the acting is mm -hmm. so bad and so so bad that it's just it's hard to watch and Weiler is known for doing good very good work with actors he still holds the record for the most uh, Academy Award-winning performances, thirty something, 14, right? No, fourteen performances that won and thirty something nominated. Nominated, yeah. yeah. Probably wow. the record for most takes too. Yeah, well, that, that, <laughs> except for Kubrick, and, and he himself was nominated what twelve times for director? Eleven, eleven, times. eleven wow. times, won three. That's amazing. For uh, he won for Miniver, uh, Mrs. Miniver, the best, best years, years of our and lives, ben -Hur, and Ben Hur, yeah, and. Um, but he, he doesn't have, like, a there's no Weiler style. No. But but maybe that is the style. But he, The movie, you can see a bit of a change uh, visually after World War II, after the experience yes. he had, yeah. because he learned a lot more about how to use the camera, part, part, partly because he was forced to. Um, Spielberg even said, like, in watching his movies, you could see how he became more cinematic afterwards. Yes. But not, but still, but still in a way that was sort of self-effacing. Mm -hmm. But I think the letter is, it does not seem like a play at all. No, no, not at all. Uh, How is the acting besides Davis? Uh, pretty good. There is an actor named James Stevenson. You've mm, never heard I of. I don't know that name. No, you don't. And he was a British actor who came over here in the mid-30s. He had tiny parts. And then he... Um, the letter is his one claim to fame. He got an Oscar nomination. He plays Davis's lawyer. Mm, yeah, he's good in it. He's very, very good in it. And then he died the following year of a heart attack at age 52. Oh. Sadly, yeah. Oh. And uh, Jack Warner wanted somebody more famous to play that part, but well, Weiler... Jack Warner always wanted someone yes, more famous. Yeah. Yes, Wy he did. Yes, he did. Weiler stood his ground, and um, it, it, it's a very uh, successful film. Uh, with the performances, Gail Sondergaard, the first Oscar-winning supporting actress, plays the right. uh, widow of the man, and she comes hey, off a little, I know. Yeah, that's the one part of the movie that makes me kind of squirm. A little bit, yeah. but... So but much, I think that's and then Herbert Marshall. I think that's something of its time. Yes. So it's, from from an actor's point of view, what is it about, why was Weiler so good with actors? Why did so many Well, supposedly he did take after take until... The performance. Well, I remember reading one article about him and, and and actors making comments, and they would ask like, "What is it that you want? What are you looking for?" And he just said, "I'll know it when I see it." <laughs> Interesting. The only so the only one who wanted more takes than Weiler, oddly enough, was his last Oscar-winning performance, and that was Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. In Funny, right? And you know <laughs> that was her first film. You know, Roman yeah. Roman Holiday sort of gave us Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. I mean, and he, yeah. yeah, and she's excellent in. in Oh yeah, just a miraculous director. But uh, and and Davis, Davis, her, for my money, her three greatest performances, All About Eve, The Letter, and the film that she did right after The Letter, uh, The Little Foxes. Little Foxes. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, and she's Foxes. great in that. And unfortunately, also a bad person. <laughs> a very bad person. She and Weiler did fight, though, even though they were... They had, a, like, an affair. They had an affair in, in the beginning. But um, they, they, they fought on um, 
on the letter. Um, there's a, a scene towards the end where she basically tells her husband, I can't, I can't, I still love the man that I shot. And she looks at him. And Davis wanted to play, play it without looking at him. She said no woman would ever say that looking directly at her husband. And she stormed off the set to close down for a day. <laughs> and then Wyler got his way. And um, 35 years later at the AFI dinner, they were still arguing about it. Yeah, that's well, I think they argued <laughs> a lot right. about Little Foxes, too. I think oh, I, yes. I think there's one scene in particular, but I, I think Davis got her way. Davis got her way. Basically, uh, Davis had seen Tallulah Bankhead on stage and wanted to play it as coldly as Bankhead. And Wyler wanted to soften it up. Yeah, wrong. And he was wrong. wrong. He was wrong. I think Davis is just brilliant in that. Unfortunately, they never worked again hmm. together. And a lot of Davis's pictures, apart from All About Eve... They're not very good. They're not very good. Which I mean, I don't a, like Mr. Shame. I don't like Mr. Skeffington, which no. is considered I a great movie. Yeah, I don't either. And I know a lot of people who do. But it's I just mean, like, there's good performances in it. But Claude Rains. Like, yeah, Claude Rains always, especially. Always, always. Yeah. So, all right. So, so that, the letter, it's on HBO Max. Um, I can't praise it enough. It's... Uh, Hour and a half, it's not a long movie. And uh, it's Betty Davis at her very, very best and William Wyler at his best. And and, and I think it's time to re rediscover Wyler because, you know, he Absolutely. doesn't have a clearly identifiable style like Ford or Hitchcock or someone who you can trace all the way through, but clearly a master and a genius. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, because when you had the rise of, like, with all the French critics of the all-tourist movement and everything, he was someone who was sort of criticized a lot and kind of downplayed as being like sort of the studio directors yeah. like the like the French yeah. studio directors that they hated so much yeah. so but I think it's a lot more than that. I think there's too many brilliant performances and too many yeah. great films yeah. and not only that but why can't you be a really really good director and try to do different things right yeah, and what was weird too is that they called Hawks an auteurist right but who also did, had no distinct who, who yeah who did every single genre you could think of under the sun right interesting so. So. all right johnny what's your number three well that's a good segue a good because, segue because i try to like pick movies from different decades and i'm sort of cheating with my first round here i picked two howard hawks movies from the 1940s i did, I did a couple of doubles too. yeah to have and have not in the big sleep so to have and have not 1944 humphrey bogart lauren bacall walter brennan Marcel Dalio. Oh, Yay. Poor Marcel Dalio. They should make a movie about Marcel Dalio. Mm. Such an interesting story. And Hoagie Carmichael and a whole other other people that are very familiar to anybody who has seen movies from Warner Brothers in the yes. 40s. Um, the movie takes place in Fort de France, Martinique, a French colony in 1940. And France is now under Nazi rule. Um, it's not long after the fall of France, so... The Humphrey Bogart char character is trying to sort of maneuver his way around what's going on there. Um, you could call the movie sort of an adventure, war, romance with a lot of humor. Um, and it's just so much fun and gives us the famous introductory scene of Lauren Bacall. <laughs> Slim. And uh, I, I mean, I think the movie is nearly perfect. And it's about, I mean, you, we have like this genre that's going on, but it's about friendship 
about trying to figure out you know how to do the right thing in really adverse situations about personal integrity and about falling in love yep uh, I love that she calls him Steve throughout the whole movie oh yeah for no I know. Reason, which, which was which was apparently uh, Hawks and his wife made up names for each other he used to always call his wife Slim and she would always call him Steve so right. he Slim used Hayward. that in the movie Nice. And the other movie I'm pairing with this is The Big Sleep, which is sort of the other side of the same coin, because you also again have Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, uh, based on a Raymond Chandler novel. Uh, quite a bit of it has been changed. I've read the novel. Um, there was like a lot of uh, problems with trying to appease the censors, because in the original novel, it's very clear that the crime boss is running a pornography ring. Huh? But yeah. there was no pornography in 1948. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's a veiled reference in the movie. You can, if you think about it, you can figure out that that the Carmen, the Colonel's daughter, is is posing nude for all these pictures that I are being, the, the, being circulated. The plot being hard to follow. It's very well. Hard it's to it's known. It's known for being a very very convoluted, convoluted plot. Um, you know, you had several writers trying to adopt the story. Um, also, in the original story, there is a homosexual relationship, which is completely cut out. Yeah, I wonder why. There to were no appease, hom- no to gay people the back then. Yeah. Well, there were no homosexuals um, in uh, The writers involved with the <laughs> screenplay were Lee Brackett and William Faulkner. Wow. They wrote alternating sections. And then another draft with Jules Firthman and Hawks were rewriting. Also, Hawks had this thing where a lot of times on set, he would... He would rewrite dialogue right there on the set and have him change it. So he was always very, very involved with with the writing. And um, and again, it's the same kind of themes going on, but also another another great cast. Again, like I said before, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, John Ridgely, who was a common face in all those movies at that time. Martha Vickers, oh, sure. Sonia Darren, who for some reason is uncredited, and she's really, really good in it. She plays the... Uh, the woman who's in the bookstore. The bookstore woman, that's in. right. Yeah, yeah, and she becomes involved with this sort of off-screen romance with Elijah Cook Jr., Dorothy Malone, which yes. we had that great scene in the other bookstore across yes. the street. Dorothy Regis Malone. Regis Toomey, Bob Steele, and Charles Waldron, who plays the aging father in the hothouse where he's got all the plants going all over the place and everything. He keeps the, right. he keeps it like 120 degrees because his blood's so cold, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and you see Humphrey Bogart sweating through his shirt and taking off his jacket. And as, as always with Hawks, no technique, no showing off, no... Very, um, again, yeah. very self-effacing. But Storytelling. So, but so engaging. It yeah. just immediately feels makes you feel comfortable and involved, and you just go for the ride with this really, really fun story. And I, if you haven't seen both of these movies, I highly recommend you see them as soon as possible. Are they on HBO Max? On HBO Max? Yeah. I don't know. They're probably on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Because I, che- uh, I did check for the movies... The, the letter is available on HBO Max, yep. by the way. Yeah, that I don't, I don't know. Um, of course, Turner but, Classic uh, Going back to the both. fact that it's, I mean, it's famous for being very convoluted. Yes. Uh, halfway through making the movie, Hawks and the cast realized they did not know if the chauffeur had killed himself or was murdered. <laughs> so a message was sent to Raymond Chandler, who said to a friend years later, they sent me a wire asking me, and damn it, I didn't know either. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I you have, don't care because the chemistry you is don't, so. And that's yeah. this thing. It's almost like Hitchcock. It's it's all about it, the MacGuffin. It really doesn't matter. It's about enjoying that ride and interaction of characters and the different things that that go on between them. And and once again with Hawks too, it's about two people falling in love. Right. And, and thing. this one has hu- a, a lot of humor. A lot well. of humor. There's humor yeah. in to have and have yes. not too, but not That's quite a little as more... much. There's more banter yeah. in, to the, in the, the Big Sleep. Yeah. yeah. And remember, fans, if you like the podcast, just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> just put your lips together and blow. All right. So a couple from Hawks there, Bogart and Bacall. Can't get much better than that. Uh, I'm going back a little further than that. Um, to two films, uh, then double entry, direct, both directed in the same year somehow by Wild. Pull that off. I have no freaking clue. I mean, the, both of these films are only about 70 minutes each. So this is Wild Bill Wellman. And, you know, when we talk about pre code, we talk a lot about sex, of course, and Mae West and, you know, all, all the way to Betty Boop and the violence in Little Caesar and Public Enemy yeah. and Scarface. But we often, often lost in that shuffle is how explicitly political, and how explicitly political, I mean in the sense of criticizing the government in a very, very direct way, the Hoover administration, so many of those films were. And, you know, even the musicals, we've talked about this so often, you know, the the amazing Warner Brothers cycle of musicals from the 30s, uh, 42nd Street and Gold Diggers and, you know, uh, Footlight Parade and Dames and all of those were very political. I and think I think that's something that differentiated Warner's from the other studios. And that's how I think they always first more edgy, more political. Right, and that's how they kind of you know Universal in the early '30s was horror, and MGM was glamour, and they were political. They didn't try to escape the depression. They they not only faced the depression, they faced it head on with no holds barred. And the two films I'm talking about again, I don't know how he did these in the same year. Both from 1933 are Heroes for Sale and Wild Boys of the Road. And they, as I said, they directly criticize the government. But what makes them work for me is, and, and I came to them because in my, I do a virtual film society and we're doing obscure films of the 30s. And so I watched both of those. I had my, my, my team watch, watch those for this. And it's just amazing. But What's so powerful about both of those films is that their political capital P, they're talking about how the system is failing people, but the, the, just the, the sense of humiliation and shame yeah. of being poor. I mean, in Wild Boys of the Road, they don't want to go into town because it turns out one of the boys says, well, uh, you know, my, my, one, my mom will probably be at the community chest, you know, the, the food pantry, getting free food. I mean, it's just, it, it opens with a, a sophomore dance at the high school and he doesn't even have a dollar to get in. And it's, ju- it's just heartbreaking. And in Wild Boys of the Road, they leave home because they don't want to be burdened to their families. Yes. It's incredible. They they all say, I just, I didn't want to be another mouth to feed. And so this group of teenagers, all boys but one girl, um, Sally from Seattle, um, you know, have this amazing odyssey of, uh, of traveling as hobos on the trains throughout Depression-era America. And, you know, uh, as for Heroes for Sale... Tom, who's played by Richard Bartomess, the great uh, silent film actor who shows up in Only Angels Have Wings, uh, Hawks. Speaking of of Hawks, 
Um, he, you know, remember we talked so much about the last uh, the last number in Gold Diggers of Thirty Three, Forgotten Man, where you know, big number in a musical about American World War One veterans yeah. who have you know are indigent and in the streets now, completely forgotten, and the hero of Heroes for Sale might as well be that guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Heroes for Sale, the thing about that story is that all you have to do is replace morphine with Oxycontin, and it's today. Isn't it incredible, though, John, how we've kind of circled back yeah. to that? You're absolutely right. Yeah. There are no stars in these films, really, just that really solid stable of Warner's character actors, you know. And the, fi the films that... And what happens is... In a sense, the characters in these films sort of take the place of the government. Um, in Wild Boys of the Road, they they form a society in this sewer pipe city outside yeah. of Cleveland, yes. right? And one of the great scenes is you see Sally sweeping. They're miserable. It looks like the cabins in Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, exactly. So much of the films remind me of Grapes of Wrath. But, you know, this is six, seven years before, five years before the novel and, and seven years before the uh, the movie. And, you know, her sweeping up like, like it's a mansion, you know, sweeping the porch. And... Is Wild Boys the Road an original story, original screenplay? No, it it's, a, it's a novel. And oh, I think is, Heroes for is. Sale is too. But but very, very much changed. And then in Heroes for Sale, Tom ends up being in on this, patenting this machine that he works at a laundromat, finally gets a job after being a World War I hero who's ignored, gets a job working at a laundromat, and his friend the communist invents a machine that Tom invests in that is able to do, you know, the work of 10 men, you know, in, in like, in like, uh, an hour and which is great and the company promises them that they're not going to lay anybody off because of the automation and of course they immediately do and there's a great scene where there's a riot in there and Tom ends up with the money that he's gotten from being an investor in this machine he ends up giving all the money to the local diner to feed the indigent folks there every night it, so it's almost as though the message is the government has failed us. We have to step up as individuals and take care of each other and create our own society. Now, both of the films were going to end on a sad note. Um, but uh, Jack Warner made them change it because uh, Heroes for Sale was released in June 33 and uh, Wild Boys in October of 33. And um, Jack Warner, turns out, was a huge fan of FDR. And so it feels... Was he? he was. Yeah, I'm not surprised. It so, feels, was, so was John Ford. Yep. It feels a little tacked on, but like in the end of Wild Boys of the Road, the judge, who really should throw them in jail, the judge says, when he's standing under a big WPA poster that says, do your part, you know, it, it couldn't be more obvious, but it's, it's just so bracing and shocking to see um, the politics so explicit, even if they kind of you know, steer away from a tragic ending because there are times when these films feel nihilistic. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, how much more can you torture these these characters, especially the kids in Wild Boys? Yeah, because I, I, I watched... I, I'd seen Wild Boys of the Road a very long time ago and I remember liking... I think I, I was a kid when I saw it. I saw it on TV. And um, I made it a point to watch it again for this and I do... And when the ending came up, I was kind of like... Well, I really like there's a good ending for him, but 
this feels a little like a little contrived, ta- little tacked up, a little like I, I. What was this the original ending? What, what was it? especially with Wellman because I've seen interviews with him where he complains about having his endings changed constantly. Yeah, but it's it's just so shocking and lovely. And as I said, even in the most escapist genre of all, the musical, and, and for the most to- part, it's well acted. Yeah, by no names. I mean, yeah. by great character actors, people you see. Like, for and example... Grant Mitchell's the father. Right, and Grant Mitchell He's ends really up really playing the, the, the guy who runs the one decent camp that the Jodes go to yeah. in... Uh, He's in Heroes in Graves. Sale. Yep. And, you know, Charlie Grapewin is in both, who plays Grandpa yeah. in Grapes of Wrath. So i got to believe, I mean, Grapes of Wrath is a Fox film, but I've got to believe that Ford uh, was was familiar with, uh, there There are some things that ring very much like, you know, yeah. not as not as beautifully done as Grapes of Wrath. So, and I kept thinking, you know, I watched Sullivan's Travels last night, Was they were doing Sturgis Night on HBO, and I kept thinking, this is, oh brother, where art thou? This is the real, yeah. oh brother, where art thou, yeah. that John Sullivan is going yeah. out to make, you know, instead of making Ants in Your Pants of 1939, you know, to show the real... And it was being done. It was done by Warners. It was pre-code. And it was very, very explicit about the failings of our government. I can't remember... I mean, what, what you guys are talking about all the president's men. So I guess, I mean, that that's an example, but not... Not on this big sort of systematic level, but and I can't a- think of another studio at that time that was trying to make movies like I mean, not MGM. No, and and they are hard. I mean, while Boys of the Road is on Amazon, Heroes for Sale is not anywhere. Mm. It was on but Turner it, Classic yes, when it you was. saw, but I I've right. gone on. It's not there. Maybe it'll it'll come back on or come back on uh, HBO Max, which sometimes shows TCM films. But if you want to see just like a, and, and as John very accurately pointed out, there are many resonances with politics today in our age of increasing Look, the inequality. The last time it was on TCM, which is just a short while ago, I was watching. I was like, oh my god! Right, this is today. This is this is today. Just substitute, you know, oxycontin for morphine. It's the same story all over again. Wait, and, and, then, and, and unfortunately, it is an example of one performance that's really bad that hurts the movie, and that's the the secondary character. Oh, uh, the, the, the rich one, kid. The, the, yeah. Well, the one who, when you see the battle scene, who, he he gets the medal. and then he and then he doesn't really tell them what exactly happened, and you just like that's where your real cowardice is that you won't stand up and tell them what really happened. And the battle scene is done so well too. And it just it just, you know, we pay so much lip service to our veterans these days, you know, thank you for your service. Yeah. They have they bring them out at football games and the whole stadium stands yeah. up and, but you know, but these the tax people dollars at work. Right. No, but they're 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 dying they're committing suicide, yeah. you know, a dozen a day and we're not doing anything about it. So yeah. More things change, right? So from 1933, both directed by Wild Bill Wellman, uh, Heroes for Sale and Wild Boys of the Road. Strong I, recommended. I have to say, I'm surprised that you said that Jack Warner was a big FDR because he definitely got more conservative Very as much. he got older. Oh, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you... His last film that he it seemed to, personally seemed to be produced... what happened to all of them for some reason. Well, uh, uh, Mayer was always conservative, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, in um, Warner's last movie that he produced personally was 1776, and at the request of Richard Nixon, the number Cool, Cool, Considerate Men was cut. 
huh. from the theatrical version, much to the horror of the book writers, Peter Stone. It, was, it, it has later been put back. And it's, do you know the show? The, yeah, the yeah, show? yeah. It's the song where yeah. basically uh, the Southerners are singing about why they have to keep slavery and, and everything, and Nixon wanted it out. And, he, and Warner acquiesced. And uh, it's like, so that's why I'm a little surprised. Interesting about uh, yeah, no, he, being a liberal. The, well, the same with, the same with uh, John Ford is. I mean, his politics yes. are very contradictory because yes. he was a big FDR fan. He was mm-hmm. apparently known for most of his life as being very progressive politically, but then he would support certain yeah, you know, right right wing politics. He was he became a fan of Nixon for yes, some reason. He did. Yet he made it a point when he made Sergeant Rutledge and Cheyenne Autumn true and to. To you know, he wanted to tell this story about uh, a black soldier being, you know, wrongly accused of a crime, and uh, uh, Woody Strode constantly mm-hmm. appraised him for casting him in that movie sure. and saying that you know he really stood up for me. So sure, I liked I liked uh, Autumn too. I yeah. think that's a very underrated film. I, did, I, I I agree, and and un and uncharacteristically, that's Warner Brothers, right? Uh, really. Tragic, sad, sad yeah. ending. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. As it should be, given the subject matter. But that did not do any business when it came. Yeah, out. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's an apologia for how he portrayed Native Americans, yeah. <laughs> for, you know, for the, for yeah. the past thirty something years. Yes. But I well, find we'll get to that. We should. Yeah, hold we're that. getting there. Yeah, hold yeah, that yeah. thought, Michael. What's next for okay. you? Okay. Uh, next is a movie that a lot of people may not even know about. Uh, it's the Nun Story hmm. from 1959. Directed by Fred Zimmerman from a screenplay by Robert Anderson. And it's based on a very popular novel of 1956 by Catherine Holm, which was based on the true story of Sister Marie Louise Habals. Have you seen it? Long Maybe? time yeah, ago. Okay, because it's, it it's TCM. Yeah, TCM is, has it, and also um, uh, Amazon Prime has it, I think, for a cost of. I think this is an extraordinary movie. When I saw it as a little kid, I thought it was an extraordinary movie. And, I, and it's not like I've ever had a desire to join a nunnery. Yeah, it's very powerful. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it is definitely, in my opinion, Audrey Hepburn's mm-hmm. finest dramatic performance. Because I loved Audrey Hepburn, but most of her dramas, even the children's hour that, was, that Weiler directed... Are not very good, and she's not that good in it. Yeah, I mean, she's good in Wait Until Dark. I don't happen to like the movie. I don't like it either. Yeah, I, mean, I just yeah, don't I like it. I don't like the play. I just don't like it's it. It's a little manipulative, yeah. but it, it has its moments. Yeah. Well, you got to see Quentin Tarantino on do that on stage, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> and it was uh, one of the he played the kid. No, he played yeah. Alan Arkin. He role. played the dark. <laughs> Anyway, it continue. Was, oh, yeah, back back to a good, <laughs> a good movie. <laughs> a good movie. Um, this was once the novel, which was very popular, uh, was published. Um, I'm surprised the novel was so popular. It was interesting. Yeah, and from what I understand, the movie follows the novel. Yeah, that's what I had read yeah, too. It, it's about a Belgian uh, woman. She's a nurse. Her father is a excellent. Uh, it's a research scientist. Research, uh, uh, but uh, he's a doctor. And she wants to heal. That's her thing. She wants to go to the Congo and heal. Yeah. And she wants to do it through 
um, becoming a nun, and it shows everything that happens, the the whole ritual about being a Do you think of your uh, vocation of being a nurse or your vocation to God, what's more important? And that's uh, what happens to uh, this Sister Luke, who basically wants to become a good nurse and a good uh, researcher and... Um, she wants to be a good person. And a good person, and of course World War II happens. And her father dies in, uh, during the Blitz um, in, in Belgium during bombings. Um, one thing I love about this movie is the extraordinary, extraordinary cast. Yeah. Besides Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. I mean, Zimmerman got the cream of the crop of, of actors, many of whom rarely did films. This was the uh, only like the third talkie I think that Edith Evans ever did. Wow. She's, and she's great in it. And she's great in it. This is the, up, up until now, this was the largest role Peggy Ashcroft ever had. She plays the, the nun in the Congo. And um, you have uh, Mildred uh, Dunnick. Wonderful. Uh, who, who is wonderful. Um, Patricia Collins from... Uh, oh, from Shadow of Shadow a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt, who sure. didn't make that many movies. I think this was the film debut of Beatrice Strait. Wow. It was the film debut of Colleen Dewhurst. Yeah. Memorable. Very memorable. She plays a uh, mentally ill person who attacks the sister, uh, sister in the hospital. It, it sounds like if this hadn't been released in the same year as Ben-Hur, it might have won some serious Oscars. That was the problem. Right. It was nominated for eight Oscars. It lost all of them, uh, six of them to Ben-Hur. Yeah. And then uh, Audrey Hepburn lost to Simone Signore and the screenplay lost to um, Room at the Top mm. for adaptation. Uh, but it was a very successful film. It opened at Radio City yes. Music Hall. Uh, which I, I find that's that's that I was going to ask if you knew whether or not it was, uh, it was. very popular. Because yes. it's, the reason I, I ask is because I think it's an excellent movie. I mean, I'm glad you're talking about it because actually it's a movie that we have not talked about at all. No. It's not an easy movie to watch. It really makes you yeah. sort of squirm because you really... You really understand mm -hmm. what they go through and the, this ascetic lifestyle and how that the whole sense of self is a basically stripped away. It's Abnegated, almost it's almost yeah. it's almost like a military boot camp only only it's religion. Right. And I forgot to mention, of course, Peter Finch. Yes. Wow. Peter Finch who's who's excellent. And um, Patricia Bosworth. Isn't it? Remember the biographer of Montgomery oh. Cliff? Yeah, and a lot of oh, other books too. Yeah. And several other she books. Was, uh, she was an too. actress. Oh, I did not know. She that. was an actress until the mid 60s, and she plays uh, her uh, sister Luke's friend who does leave the convent. And uh, she's very good in it. I mean, everybody in it. Uh, uh, Peter, as I said, Peter Finch plays the uh, doctor that she doesn't become involved with, but she has friction with in the Congo. And oh, well, it's, there's definitely there, it, it's uns, the, uns, an unspoken it's romantic the, feeling. He just it. admires her so much and yeah. wishes he, she wasn't a nun. And yeah, not as sexy as Black Narcissus, the no. sexiest nun movie ever. But <laughs> <Yeah>. no, no. <laughs> Which is also an excellent movie. I love Black Narcissus. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> And I've never heard anyone describe it that way. But it is a sexy nun movie. <laughs> but interesting enough, there were no Catholics involved in, in, the, the, making of in the, the making of the movie. But it did get 
the producers did go to uh, various priests and stuff to make sure it would be yeah, okay. Well, it's yeah. like that scene at the beginning of Hail Caesar where they have the priest, yes. the rabbi, and the minister sitting yes. around approving the script for the Jesus <laughs> film. But uh, Zimmerman was Zimmerman was Jewish. Uh, Robert Anderson was Protestant. Audrey Hepburn and Edith Evans were Christian scientists. And Peggy Ashcroft uh, was agnostic. Wow. So there were just... Uh, yeah, that guy, and there, as you guys have said before, there were so many great films in 1959, starting with Anatomy oh, of Murder. Oh, that's one, of my, other, yeah. one of my favorite years, so except it, for Ben-Hur. Uh, yeah, it got uh, lost in like, the shuffle. Some like it hot. Yeah, first, the yeah. 400 Blows, Wild Strawberries. I mean, I could go on and yeah. on. Yeah. Um, little piece of trivia. Uh, Franz Waxman, who did the score was very anti-Catholic. Hmm. And apparently the music that he did for the ending was unsuitable, as Zimmerman put it. And that's why the ending doesn't have any music. I think it's excellent. With and I think, yeah. I, yeah. Think yeah. I think it is. I think it is. But that was rare for a studio film but also, at that time not to have music. But he uses the sound of that door closing mm -hmm. so well, and it's so powerful. I think music would have would have killed that moment. Yeah, yeah. I definitely need to see it again. Oh, it's it's Turner has it on frequently. Actually, I think it's on this Friday. All right, so um, the DVR. It. I will DVR. Yeah. It. I will watch. It's really it's a really good movie, and uh, I'm just surprised that it was as as successful as. It was. I really like too the the casting of Audrey Hepburn in it because yes. by this time she was known as. The fun, mm -hmm. charming girl, like, oh, Audrey Hepburn, it's going to be so much fun. So in this movie, you see this, we're so familiar with that, that personality. You see someone being tamped down, not being able to express themselves at all. And she does this thing with her hands that's, that's so great. It is widely believed that if Hepburn hadn't agreed to do it, the movie might not have been made. I, Yeah, I think that's yeah. probably true. Because she wanted to make it because of the connection with Belgium. Yeah. Oh yeah, and yeah. Zinnemann, another great director, he you was. know, who who would, without a distinctive style, who was a great storyteller. He most really of the time. was, and he, worked well with actors, very and, well with actors. Yeah, this, along with the search, and from here to eternity, I think is is best. Search is beautiful. Yeah, but those those three in particular, I think, are his best films, and he did have a career all through the seventies. Yeah, Julia yeah. was very successful. Not yes. one of my favorites, but. Uh, it was a successful film. Yeah, it wasn't until the Oscar uh, celebration and the speeches. Oh, <laughs> oh God. well, Zionist hoodlums. In all honesty, she was referring to the Jewish Defense League, I headed know. by Meyer Kahani, and who who shot? Uh... Yeah, I know. No <laughs> argument from me. I mean, she was right. He, he was a Zionist. Zionist, Zionist hoodlum. hoodlum. All right. Good name for a band, too. Yes. <laughs> Zionist Hoodlums. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Meyer. What's next? What's up On next for note, you? Speaking of John Ford, so my movie representing from Warner's from the 50s, because now we're starting to get into that period where directors were starting to maybe inch out into more independent land, and Warner's was going towards that direction of distributing more than actually being fully involved. We have The Searchers, 1956, huh. directed by John Ford, based on a novel by Alan LeMay, which is based on a real incident. Um, with John Wayne, Jeffrey Hunter, Ward Bond, Vera Miles, Harry Carey Jr., John Quaylen, and Natalie Wood, and Henry Brandon as the Comanche Chief Scar. Scar. Such a great, such a great name. It's almost like uh, Ethan Edwards and Scar are almost mirror images of each other. 
This is a movie that, for me, conjures up so many mixed feelings. Uh, because there's, there's moments in the movie that, that are absolutely stunning, just jaw-droppingly beautiful. Uh, there's moments that are, that are very moving. There's because you have like the moment, for example, uh, the morning after he's, he's arrived so-called home, and you see the unspoken exchange between him and his so-called sister-in-law. Sister yep. You know that there's, there was a past romance that was unrequited. In fact, if you start to figure it out, it's very possible that Debbie, the youngest, is, is his, his daughter. That's what I thought. Yeah. I, I thought so, too. Yeah. And, and also, it, you see this, this man who has so many contradictory aspects to him. Because in some ways, he's borderline evil. Yet at the same time, he's so loving and warm to the children. Um, and he does do things that are very self-sacrificing. But he clearly did some bad stuff that we oh, don't, don't yeah. find out about during the uh, during the war. Yes. Oh, clearly, yeah. clearly. And I mean, I mean, he's clearly very racist. Um, which is another aspect of the movie, because in some ways the movie has been praised about trying to sort of show the Native American culture, and there's also that there's that the scene with the cavalry has basically committed an atrocity. Yes. Um, they, they, they see what's happened. It's, it's the aftermath of Luke, who was the so-called wife of Jeffrey Hunter, has been killed for no reason at all. There's children that have been killed for no reason at all. But the John Wayne character is not the only racist character in this movie. The other characters are too. And you start, as you watch it, you start to think, well, is, is it just the characters are racist or is this movie racist too. But it's interesting, the character he hates the most is Jeffrey Hunter's character, who's the worst, and he, he doesn't mind if the Indians stayed to themselves, but yeah. the mix, the half-breed, is yes. like the worst of yeah. the worst for him. Yeah, which is why the worst of the worst for him is to think that maybe his daughter has been now living with someone. Right. And why is it better for her to come back? Because when we finally see her, she's completely assimilated into Comanche culture. She's probably, she may have children at that point. We don't know. And it does feel somewhat contrived when all of a sudden she changes her mind and wants to go back with him. Because when, you, when they first see her, she, she tells him, I don't want to go back. And this was the case a lot of times. When Many times. Yeah. When, and the, the, real, the real incident that it's based on, uh, she was part of the Comanche culture for a much longer period of time. But they, they forced her to come back. Um, she had already had children. Uh, one of her sons became one of the leading Comanche chiefs, and she forever was extremely unhappy the rest of her life. She never, she never wanted to go back and was always uncomfortable in, in white culture, hmm. which is probably what happened to a lot of them if they were taken so young. But uh, technically, though, the movie also <sighs> is so, it's so uneven, though, because some of the images are just absolutely breathtaking, very, very powerful. But then occasionally you have an image that's obviously on a set, mm -hmm. and it doesn't always quite it's like match. Like Liberty Valance is like that. Yeah, too. and Liberty Valance, well, Liberty Valance, a lot of... It, Liberty Valance, I think, in that sense, works a little bit better because it's such an enclosed environment. And black and white. And yes. it's in black and white, and you can get away with it a little bit better. Plus, at that by, by that time in the 60s, they were all doing that high-key lighting because that's what TV was doing, and all the movies were trying to compete with TV. This movie doesn't try to do that at all. Ford went all out with making beautiful, powerful images. 
and, and some of them you just oh, s- the image of dead, just, little just Debbie and the, the gravestone and oh, you know, yeah. just a oh, shadow. My God. Just I know. A shadow. I know. And then when you see Scar <sighs> from that angle and everything, it's so powerful. But the other aspect of it too is the acting. Some of the acting is so good. Wayne is, I think it's Wayne's best book. He's, 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 easily. He's, he is great in it. But then you have Jeffrey Hunter, Jeffrey Hunter for example. I think he's who, so bad. He's, he's not, <laughs> it's not so much that he's bad, but he's... He's not good. He's not good, and it, I think <laughs> he it, never was I think there are moments where it hurts the movie, and the thing is, when you watch him, you see that he understands the part. But you see him working at it. You yeah. see him trying really hard at times. Uh, Vera Miles is very good. Always. Man. Ward Bond is very Ward good. Ward Bond man. was always good. Um, but then you have some of those minor characters where, I mean, uh, Ford had a had a tendency to let minor characters ham. Yes. I, I don't know why that was. Or Harry whatever, Carey Jr. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's not very good in it. No. You see him acting. And John Quaylen does that kind of stereotypical <laughs> Swedish yeah, immigrant exactly. kind of thing going on. Not always. He didn't so always pretty do pretty balanced that. by gum. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, because this is a movie that a lot of the directors who so-called made their big breakthrough in the 70s, like Spielberg, and especially Scorsese, Love this movie. They say it was a big influence. On, Lucas. Like Taxi Driver. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Paul Schrader said yeah. that it was a big influence on him when he was writing Taxi Driver. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard called it, the, I think, the third or fourth greatest American film ever made. Is it? Does it deserve to be on the Sight and Sound list? Is it really as great as like some people have said? It was 12. Was it was, successful? It was, in the, it, was in the, it was. And I always thought that it wasn't, but it was. Hmm. And uh, I think mainly because it's it passes as a you know rip roaring western, but it's um, not really rip roaring. Not a lot no, of action it's scenes. It's no. not fun. No, yeah. it's not. Well, there's there's humor in it. There's, there's a lot humor, of humor, but it's not. No, very, it's not Rio Bravo. <laughs> oh, not oh, not at all. Not at all. That's not at all. Um, no, some of it is really really sad. Yeah, really sad. And then of course you've got the Max Steiner score, which and, and again the music's really good. But it's so melodramatic. A lot of it. You know, yeah. what, what, what puts it over the top for me, sorry to be, to make the obvious statement, is the last shot. Well, the first shot and the last shot have been forever imitated ever oh, since. Sure. You know, be, like with Liberty Valance, there is no... they. You need John Wayne's characters to build the West, but once the West is built, there's just no place for them because it's become civilized and he's literally outside the door. And yeah. there is an element, yeah. there is a certain kind of tragedy to that, even though he does. Oh, a, he's a tragic figure, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. So for for me, that's that seals the deal. Was on it surgery. critically acclaimed when it came out? Uh, I I because I, I was re- I mixed I I read a lot of different stuff and it was sort of mixed. Because uh, I'm surprised so, it didn't get any Oscar nominations, especially for Wayne. Yeah. Who's who? As I said, is is yeah brilliant. And that it, was a weak year. Maybe that was maybe, maybe, uh, maybe in eighty days. Maybe yeah. it's because of the character. Could be. You know, okay. I mean, it's it's not a character to really like. It's. It's it's it makes you really uncomfortable that character. He does what everybody wants to happen, mm. but what what he does to achieve that is, I mean, he's ruthless. Right, and that's what you need to build that West. You need to be that root. But then, as I said, once the West is built, yeah. we have no more room. For and it. you do have that. You have that very. It's a really. It's a very sad ending because yes, because you you've become so familiar with that character, but he can never ever be part. Nope. Of the so-called he, civilized. In fact, he would probably more happy 
living with the Comanches than he would be with the, with the whites. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that, to, uh, I mean, to, he seems to know more about them than anybody else. To me, it deserves its place. Uh, I, I, it's just the ultimate statement about of the myth, but also yeah. stepping it's aside a, it's, from the myth and being critical of it. Yeah, it's definitely a beginning it. of breaking down the myth, which is what Ford was starting to come to terms with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So because, I, for example, my darling Clementine, which is still it has aged very well. Yes. What he created in that movie was not the real White Earp. No. No. <laughs> it's still a good movie. No, it is. It's a very good movie. Yeah. It's it's aged well. So. All right. So the searchers, you can't do too much better than that. Um, I begin my second entry by uh, by I was sitting in uh, when I was an undergraduate at Columbia. Um, all undergraduates are required to take uh, music humanities, which at that time was the basically the history of Western music from you know medieval motets through um, through John Cage. And um, when we got to Wagner. And our professor was was talking about Wagner and the good and the bad. Everybody, under their breath, was singing "Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit," and that was the moment where I really, if Warner Brothers' greatest impact as a studio may have been in its animated division, particularly the Looney Tunes, because those films had such a wide reach, were shown so, have such a huge cultural influence on us. But I want to focus on three. I want to focus on that one, which is What's Opera Doc from 1957, The Rabbit of Seville from 1950. Um, don't be so perplexed. <laughs> Why must you be vexed? Don't you know you're next? <laughs> yeah, so next. And, and Long Haired Hair from 1949, where he plays Leopold, the conductor, with, you know, with the, the, yeah. the hand. Just, just based on Leopold Stokowski, no doubt. Yeah, no, exactly. And How you know, feel about it? if you listen to you know, if you listen to our Sight and Sound episode, I complained about Miyazaki's films. Genius though he is, you know, animated films being put on the same list as live action films. So I'm sort of contradicting myself here. But I mean, Chuck Jones was a flipping genius. I, you know. Looney Tunes had existed long before Chuck Jones, uh, you know, Fritz Freeling and Robert McKimson. But under Chuck Jones, it's where I think a lot of people forget, too, that those cartoons were made to be shown with movies in a movie theater. And so you have a lot of adult humor in them. Right. And then eventually graduated to being on TV and, like... Everyone thought it was only for kids, but most of them are really made for adults. Well, but but the miracle of those films, and let's give credit also to Carl Stalling, who did the music for all of them, which is so yeah. memorable. Michael Maltese, who did the scripts for most of the best ones, including these three, and of course Mel Blanc. Yeah, oh. I mean, you can't. My God. You can't. Was there a voice he didn't do? For uh, any I of mean, them? just just amazing. I mean, first of all. Taken by themselves, they are just masterpieces of short-form animation, especially the Wagner one, especially yeah. What's Opera Doc, which is... The seat, the sets are spectacular, and the spear and magic helmet, and, you know, bye. It's just amazing. But, you know, um, as you said, John, these, these were made for a general audience, and the miracle of them is that... You know, and people have done this since, but never really before. There were jokes. I don't think of the Disney films from the 30s, 40s, no. 50s as being for adults and kids. They were mostly no. for kids. No. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure adults laughed, but there yeah. wasn't adult. So they were they were technically more impressive, you could say. I mean, that was the Disney thing. 
uh, but but they were made for for children. Right, and this was except uh, sometimes well, scary for children. Yeah, yeah, except Fantasia, you know, which was Fantasia a pretty different, which is a big failure. Border is kind of like borders True. going back and forth. I yeah. love Fantasia. Oh, I love Fantasia. Fantasia, I think. Not it, the time I, think no I think Fantasia one of the years was on the one hundred best. Uh, Sight and sound list. I'm there, but I um, wouldn't object to that. No, but what? It was what, groundbreaking. As a so as a kid growing up, when they showed these things nonstop on Saturday morning cartoons, yeah. and I grew up with my sister watching them every Saturday morning to the point where we memorized them. Um, just to, the <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, so in some ways, Warner's greatest influence as a studio was through you know the the, the animation studio and that Chuck Jones turned into you know a, a perfection. But it also, as a teacher, I'm gonna step into dangerous territory now but the fact John that as you say the people sitting in the audiences for these were going there to see you know full-length movies and b-movies of all levels of sophistication and non-sophistication and yet it was just kind of assumed that jokes about Wagner and Rossini and you know Leopold Stokowski would be generally absorbed by the general public. The level of knowledge and they would have political comments some too oh, and sure. historical. Their yeah. films were bugs is back in history, and there are historical comments. Just the 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 amount of intelligence expected of its audience is is wonderful and a yeah. little. A, a, I don't know. I hate to sound like the old guy who's saying, ah, things were better in the yeah. old days. Yeah. But yeah, I like the fact that they put out something like What's Opera Doc and expected that the audience would get, you know, the reference to Wagner. At least know they were talking about Wagner. And so that's something we have we have definitely lost. So I, because of the influence that those uh, cartoons had on my, and clearly your, you guys, uh, generation, and also because of the high expectations they set artistically and the expectations they set for their audience. I'm putting specifically the three opera Bugs Bunny ones on my list. I want to put in a word for what I consider the, the greatest uh, Warner Brothers cartoon, Duck and Muck. I mean, pure abstraction. It's it incredible. It is so abstract. Uh, <laughs> and also, of course, your cartoons do not have Mr. Daffy Duck. Yes, who is my favorite well, of, all, of all the Warner Brothers co contract players? Yes. Over, <laughs> over Betty Davis. Sorry, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's dream is to play Daffy Duck. I am Daffy Duck. <laughs> but uh, in Duck and Muck, it, it, it is literally a monologue. And the first time I saw it, I don't think I understood it at all. I mean, it really, that one is definitely not for children. Because it, 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 for those of you who haven't seen it, and you can watch it on YouTube, it's basically a monologue, except for the last five seconds, of a, a duck on a nervous breakdown. <laughs> it's the best way to call it. And the animator... Well, Daffy on a nervous breakdown. There was, there, was a, there are ducks, and then there's Daffy Duck. Yeah. Well, and fourth wall broken, and he's talking directly to the animator, who's messing with him. Yes, before. he's messing with him, he's messing with the set, he's messing with the sound, he's messing everything. It's and his it, jealousy coming out. And it is... It is he's jealous of Bugs. It is brilliant, and it turns out that Bugs is the animator. Yes, of course. Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> Bugs. I was a stinker. But I just... And, and, I, I love Daffy Duck and I, I love Duck and Muck, but I, I generally love all the Warner Brothers yeah, cartoons. That I was mean, the well, biggest joy of of the Turner 
uh, uh, They were always, yeah, they were, they were showing, always showing the their cartoons between the It's kind of interesting that because Bugs was the star. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the vehicle for most of these movies. He was supposed to be like the one we looked up to, but Bugs is not a nice guy no. at all. Well, no. He's not a good role model. None of them are. I mean, maybe. Maybe Tweety and Granny, I don't know. Oh, Tweety tortures Sylvester. I don't yeah. know. Um, and, of course, I love the coyote. Yeah, well, I think everyone, no one no one identifies with the Roadrunner. No. <laughs> now, did Mel Blanc do the voice for the Roadrunner, too? Yes. Oh, yeah, he did all the voices. Maybe. You know, he died the same day as Laurence Olivier. He's a better actor than Lawrence Totally better actor than Lawrence there was, there, was a, there was a cartoon where they're both up in heaven, uh, Mel Blanc and Olivier, and Mel Blanc is giving Olivier notes. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so, all right, so Michael, what is your third? Okay. It's, I, I just wanted to mention three of my favorite Warner Brothers movies of all time. I've talked about already, and uh, they were Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which we uh, talked about in um, oh, Best episode, First Films. Yeah, yeah. Best First Films, uh, episode 43, Day for Night, which <laughs> we, we talked about in several uh, episodes, and then um, The Wild Bunch, Lovely. which I talked about when uh, we talked about Robert Ryan. So I don't want to go into all those again. What I do want to talk about is a movie, All the President's Men. No. Which shouldn't have worked. No, you're it right. Really, it should have been a disaster. Because did you read the book? Yeah, sure. Yeah, everybody did. One of the one of the smartest things uh, that they did uh, for this adaptation, um, 1976 of the book that came out in 1974, was only cover the first seven months of Watergate. From the break-in in June 1972 to Nixon's second inauguration, uh, 1973. Now, do you did you both read William Goldman's um, Adventures in? Uh, yeah. Yes, I did. He was not very happy on that set. No, he wasn't. No, no. he's never happy. No, no, he was. <laughs> he, he basically said at one point that he wished he hadn't. Worked on the film, Adventures even though he won an Oscar. Adventures in the Screen Trade, right? Yeah. 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 He, he, um, he comes off as kind of a sourpuss. He does, but especially in, in that um, f- uh, film. Um, I'm not going to re- relate the uh, plot of all the President's Men. If you don't know it, this then we know. you don't, don't know history, and you should not be listening to this. Con- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, be- <laughs> I'm being a curmudgeon. It's, it's your, your stock in trade, yeah. Anyway, uh, supposedly Redford was not happy with Goldman's first draft. Woodward and Bernstein read it and also didn't didn't like it. Redford asked for their suggestions, but Bernstein and his then-girlfriend, writer Nora Ephron, Ah. who later married and we we all remember Heartburn. We've seen Heartburn. Yes, wrote their own draft. Redford showed the draft to Goldman, suggesting it might contain some material that he could uh, integrate. But Goldman later called Redford's acceptance of the Bernstein Efron draft a gutless betrayal. Now, why didn't why didn't Redford like the Goldman? I that I, I did not because I've read that before yeah. too, but I've never seen yeah. explicitly like what it is that he maybe didn't it was like too it. dry. I don't I don't know. That's what I'm suggesting because the film is kind of dry. 
but that I, which I, but yeah, it works. I, I think I think it's because of the way it's directed. It's yeah. not dry at all. Well, no, I, I, I yeah. when I mean dry, I know, I know what you mean. I'm being very complimentary. The next movie we talk about, that's the a good word for it. Okay, <laughs> and and I have a golden story attached to it. Oh, okay. Too. Um, originally, uh, Al Pacino was supposed to play. I read that. Yes, yes. Uh, the Bernstein part. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there was one scene from the Efron um, Bernstein version that did get into the film that um, <laughs> does not come from the book at all. And that's the scene where he goes down to Florida to oh, interview okay. the, the whole Ned Beatty, like Polly Harder. Yeah, but it is not in the book at all. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you. Um, casting. It has an amazing cast, but what I heard read uh, was George uh, uh, Ben Bradley wanted uh, George C. Scott to play him. All the Robards did was win an Oscar. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, he was not initially happy with Robards. I mean, not from the finished film, but when uh, Robards came, I think Robards is a better choice. I mean, he looked mm -hmm. they, they similar look to them. I... Well, Scott didn't want to do it because not enough money. Of course. But here are the actors who were thought of to play that role. John Forsythe, Leslie mm. Nielsen, Henry Fonda, Richard Widmark, Christopher Plummer, Anthony Quinn, Gene Hackman, Robert Mitchum, Burt Lancaster, Robert Stack, and Telly Savalas. <laughs> Telly Savalas! <laughs> I know. But apparently Bradley was initially very happy. Uh, with Robarts once he saw the finished film. Um, also, one of the criticisms I had about the film is I really thought that there should have been a scene with Catherine Graham. We got that in the post, but we got uh, yeah. yeah, but that was years and years yes, later. And but uh, Catherine Graham really did not want to be portrayed, mm. and they had actually cast uh, Geraldine Page huh. to play uh, Graham. Because in the book, she is kind of integral. Yeah. So, yeah. but, you know, that's why they didn't do it. Uh, apparently. Uh, well, it would have been a longer movie, too. Yeah. True. Uh, uh, and the movie was incredibly successful. Right. I mean, for I think it's the most successful political film ever made, financially. I'm pretty I sure. I think you're probably right. Made more money than Bullworth, anyway. Oh, it made, <laughs> oh, it made more money than almost any political film that I can think of. Uh, yeah. Because usually it's a, it's a niche. See our episode on our favorite political films, by the way. I think that's 25. Yeah. Just say. And um, it uh, won four Academy Awards for screenplay adaptation, art and sec decoration, sound, and robots for supporting actor. Was also nominated for four additional Oscars: Best Picture, Best Director, Alan Paluka, Paluka, Best Film Editing, and Best Supporting Actress, Jane Alexander, which John talked about right, in yeah. episode uh, thirty-three. She's great in it. Thirty-four B or everybody's good. Everybody is great. It had a great cast: Hal Holbrook as mm -hmm. Deep Throat, couldn't have been better. Martin Balsam and Jack Warden as two of the managing editors, although apparently uh, the Editor that uh, Martin Balsam plays thought he was underused. <laughs> um, Ned Beatty, as I mentioned, Stephen Collins, Lindsay Krauss, Penny Fuller, F. Murray Abraham, John McMartin, and Meredith Baxter. 
And um, supposedly there was a poll of Academy members saying if they could change one best picture. Rocky? It was, it was Rocky to all the President's Men. Interesting. Because Rocky did win the best picture that year. It also came out in December, which probably helped. Right. But yeah, this came out in the summer. No, fall, uh, spring. Opened in April. Oh, in April? Yeah. Oh, okay. I yeah. thought it was a little bit later. No, it was April. What a weird time. I know. I don't think Warner Brothers had was fully the confidence. Yeah. I mean, it, it got a good release, and, it, and wherever it played, it did well. But it um, it, it did. It yeah, I know amazing. what it is now. Is I remember going to see it during the summer. Mm. That's okay. what it is. But it did amazing business. And Pakula yeah, no, was, was sort of the master of paranoia. I mean, you know, yes. with uh, Parallax and oh, Clute. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he had, he had a nice run there. Yeah. yeah. No. <clears throat> um, so anyway, um, all the President's Men, although I've had, I've had a younger friends who've watched it and say they don't really understand, because I guess if you don't have a slight background in Watergate, you might get lost. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. If, uh, yeah, I... I mean, it's true. It's a lot of a lot of information that's that mm. unfolds in the movie. But have your students ever watched it? Or? No, no, not a. Because uh... if I were to have a class in political science, film and political science, that would definitely be in there. Most definitely. But, but no, it's it. If you, I bet a lot of our listeners have seen it, but probably haven't seen it in a while. So listen to Uncle Mike and go back and see it. HBO Max. It's on HBO. Max. Very good. John right. out. Okay. So, uh, my last movie. But first, I just want to mention the fact that Warner's, during the 30s and 40s, was also making really good comedies. Yes. Yes. A really good comedies. And a few that I, I really like a lot are Slight Case of Murder with Edward G. Robinson. Yes. Larcy Incorporated, also oh, with Edward G. Robinson. Great. Which Woody Allen stole. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. The Man Who Came to Dinner. Yes. Brilliant. Arsenic and Old Lace. And The Strawberry Blonde with... James Cagney, which and I don't not a big Cagney fan, but he's excellent. He is, he's it's, really and it's, good. it's it's a comedy that has sort of a melancholy edge to it, yeah. but it's really really good. And Olivia De Havilland's very and good. Olivia De Havilland's very good. And I wish he had done more comedy. Yeah, you also forgot um, the one that she did with Henry Fonda, the uh, the male animal. Clipper. Is that a Warner Brothers movie yeah. though? Oh, it is. I'm, oh. I'm pretty sure it is. That's that's a good one. Yeah. In okay. addition to all the cool Errol Flynn action films like Robin Hood and Sea. Exactly. And yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So they were all over the place. Anyway, so my last choice is Barry Lyndon. Oh yeah. And at this point, Warner's is basically just distributing the movies. Barry Lyndon is a 1975 period drama film, written, directed, and produced by Stanley Kubrick, based on the. 1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Makepeace Thackeray, starring Ryan O'Neill, Marissa Berenson, Patrick McGee, Leonard Rossiter, and Hardy Kruger. And basically the film tells the early adventures or maybe misadventures, and then later unraveling of an Irish rogue, he's always referred to, who marries a rich widow to climb the social ladder. And you could describe it as someone about someone who just keeps making bad decisions <laughs> and then makes more bad decisions to try to correct the previous bad decisions. But does it in the most beautiful lighting I've ever seen in a yes. color film. <laughs> and then once in a great while tries to do something right and good and it backfires on him. For example, the climactic jewel scene. Yep. God, that scene is so powerful. The movie did take quite a while to make. 
but it's it's full of so many gorgeous, beautiful images. Groundbreaking cinematography by John Olcott. Especially notable are the scenes shot entirely in candlelight. Uh, the settings based on William Hogarth paintings. Beautiful production design. It's just, it's just a feast for the eyes. And the great use of the music. Oh boy. Especially Handel's Saraband in D minor. And last but not least, the narration by Michael Norden. It's almost as Who's if... a wonderful actor. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost as if you're listening to a sad father watching his son march towards tragedy. I, I mean, I, I can't think of any movie, other movie, where the narration is used so well. It's funny, I think even more than 2001, and that's saying something, I think that's the Kubrick film that loses the most on a small screen. Because I've gotten a chance to see it a couple of times on a big mm -hmm. screen. And it's complete, it's, it's a groundbreaking, as you say, yeah. John, experience. And it's, it's funny because... Um, Roger Ebert said it was aggressive in its cool detachment, but somehow I find it very moving in the end. Um, it's it's and, and and there is humor in the beginning, and it slowly turns more serious and tragic as it goes along. But you could call that humor. It's very it's very dry humor. Yeah. This when I saw this movie in college, um, I hated it. <laughs> I I kept remembering Pauline Kael's review of it, who hated it, who she said, take Tom Jones, take out all the food, fun, and sex, and add an hour, and you have Barry Lyndon. Ouch. God. <laughs> Time, once again, has proved Miss Kale wrong about well, that. Well, yeah. because yeah, now it's, because you're right, there were a number of reviews oh, that did not like the movie. No. And yeah. now it's very highly regarded. It is. I went to see it. How many years? Maybe fifteen years ago, when it was at the film forum, and I think because of you, you because you'd raved so much about it, and I hadn't seen it since college. I thought I'm going to give it another shot, and I did like it yeah. a lot. I, in fact, I like it much more than 2001. Yeah, it's my favorite Kubrick movie, and um, this is going to sound weird, but it's kind of like Kubrick with a heart. There's, there's, there's something approaching, yeah. Yeah, approaching. <laughs> well, because this, this movie moves me, and even though Barry, with all his faults and everything, by the towards the end of the movie, I'm, I'm on his side. I want him to survive in a good way, and unfortunately, he doesn't. I mean, and it's, it's a, you can tell it's a movie that he always wanted to make because the 18th century is so strong yeah. in Kubrick, you know, going back to the Chateau. Well, he originally, he, was, uh, he wanted to make a movie about Napoleon. Right. He had worked a long time for that, but then there was another movie about Napoleon that was released, and it bombed at the oh, box yeah. office. Was that Rod Steiger? I think, yeah, I think that's yeah. the movie, and Warner said, no way, we're not, yeah. not going to back that one. And then, so then he went on to, to working on this. It's, it's obsessively beautiful. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. it was one of Kubrick's bombs. As far yes. as financial. Won a bunch of Oscars, though. Technical. It won technical yeah. awards. Yeah. It was up yes. for Best Picture and Director yeah. and Screenplay. Yeah. And lost all that to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. But um, it did not do good business. I think that's one of his few films that financially... It might have been the only one I don't know about um, The Shining. Oh, that, The Shining did very well. Shining did well. Shining very well. And oh Full Metal Jacket did yeah. well. Shining was a hit. Okay, then I think Barry Lyndon is the only one. 
Full Metal Jacket, I'm not sure about. I think Full Metal Jacket did really well at first because it had been a while. Yeah, it had been seven years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. And then we had Eyes Wide Shut. But that's a which, whole other episode, Which also literally. did very well, Yes, too. it did. Well, because it had stars. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. he ended up. And, uh, and I don't know who his first choice was, but uh, that was the other thing, too, that part of the reason that Ryan O'Neill is because he said, no, you got to have a star. Mm. So... But he works in it. Yeah, I, mean, I think I, he's. I think he's. I, I think, think he's, he's good in it. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got he's got some really good scenes in it. Right. If there's audience, if there's any way at all to see it on a big screen, I don't know if that. It if, still has power if you have a really good big TV. But and yeah, but you're right. You're right. You have to fully appreciate it. You see it in the. In I the never theater. did fully. I I was with you. My first time I saw it, I was like, "What am I sitting through?" And then when I got to see it on a big screen, I was like, "Oh." That's but I, when I first saw it, it wasn't a big screen because we didn't have like little screens then. Is it on HBO Max? Oh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't check mm. that. I think it probably is. It does occasionally turn up on, on Turner. On Turner. I don't know if they showed it during this whole Warner Brothers. I don't thing. think they did. Yeah. Oh wait, no. I think they did. I think there I was a couple know. nights of Kubrick. I don't know. But late. Because yeah. I know they showed Clockwork Orange. I'm sure it's on Amazon. I mean, because it's, it's all not of, hard to find. All of Kubrick's what's movies. Really, what's really, really hard to find, unless you want to spend a lot of money, is the soundtrack. Really? Yes. And I had the soundtrack, and I remember when I bought it, I, I, it I was only a few why. dollars. Oh, I, I was curious that I wanted to check something, and it's selling on, on Amazon and other places for like 60 to to $100. The original LP? Or, yeah. yeah. And we should also mention... That every Kubrick movie after Clockwork Orange were, was, was distributed by Warner Brothers. Yes. Yeah. So good on them. All right. I'm taking things in a totally different direction. Um, I ha My five favorite films of the 80s, in case anyone cares, are Blue Velvet, Do the Right Thing, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and this film. Uh, directed by a director who never really approached... The work in his work in this film beforehand or after, unfortunately, uh, a film that lost a ton of money was a notorious flop, considering how much it cost to make, but did win four Oscars. And I'm talking about Philip Kaufman's adaptation of Tom Wolfe's book about the original Mercury Seven astronauts, the right stuff. And you know, there are certain movies you know I go to see where I remember where I was and how I felt when I saw it. This is when I could tell you exactly the day I saw this. And, you know, I'm not I'm not a big... I didn't know much of the story. I mean, I knew about the Mercury astronauts, of course, but um, I think this is... Even the imperfections in this film, and there are many, work somehow, especially with the humor, which, Mike, you've mentioned a few times, uh, failed you, and a, you know, a lot Some, of people have said bit. that. The, um, the I still think it's a very good movie. The script was originally written... By, by the way, both... I didn't know this, that both Siskel and Ebert chose it as their best movie of yes. 1983. Um, Goldman wrote the script and excluded Jaeger. He started with the Mercury program. And they fought, and they fought, and they fought, and they threw out Goldman's script, and Kaufman wrote it himself. Right. Um, which is... is let for nothing else. I have no idea how they accomplished those flight scenes of Jaeger flying in the X one of of the this the the special effects in the you know when Shepard flies when Glenn flies they're a little more obvious but the flying in the plane sequences and at the end when Jaeger's trying to break the altitude record right. is 
it's it's impossible with the technology they had then. I've never seen anything like that that wasn't CGI. It it's just amazing for me and you know such an influential film i mean every astronaut movie from armageddon onward has a shot of the bravura music playing and the astronauts walking towards yes. us in slow yeah, motion so with their the spacesuits right on all stolen from the right stuff so and you know it wasn't only kaufman who did his best work here and you know i kind of liked unbearable lightness of being i did not like henry it has, it has good has good things in it i i the book is Better. And a people, you know, people have reappraised his remake of Body Snatchers, which he did in '78. Which I, yeah, I don't really like it. I'd rather watch Kevin McCarthy, honestly. Um, not the I know. not our current <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> and he went on to be Speaker of the House, and we're all so proud of him. A dead actor would be a better Speaker than the, ho- the House. Seriously, <laughs> Reagan's available. So. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Bill Conti, of course, you know, became famous for the Rocky uh, score, which was which is very good for what it is. His score for the right stuff is so far and away the best thing he ever wrote. It's genuinely rousing and moving, and I just love it. Uh, and, and, you know, there's interpolations of whole planets in there, yeah. and, you know, it, but it's perfect. And, my God, the casting. I'm, it's a great cast. I, we, yeah. I mean... Y- Scott Glenn had been seen a few times, Ed Harris too, Fred Ward, Dennis Quaid. I mean, the the guys playing the astronauts are incredible. Um, Fred Ward is Grissom, you know, the sort of tragic figure. Uh, He was wonderful. The sequence where Grissom loses his capsule is just... And by the way, something came out, I saw this in Smithsonian, that it was at... They have proven now that it was mechanical malfunction. He didn't blow the bolts early, wow. you know, which he got blamed for. Nice. And, oh, that's such a painful scene. Old hands like Kim Hunter was there playing Poncho. Kim and Stanley. Bo- Kim Stanley, right. right. <laughs> Kim Stanley, thank you, Michael. Got the Kim Street. Who c- complained that uh, a lot of her role was cut. Yeah, well, I mean... Because she's only in it like three minutes. But makes an impression. Yes. And Royal Dano there as yes. sort of the spirit of space, of flight, you know, being there at everything. Um, you know, Harry Shearer and Jeff Goldblum are in there, sort of the comic relief, which works sometimes yes. and doesn't work sometimes. But, and then Barbara Hershey, was very, who's, very you know, Glennis uh, Shepard's wife, and Levon Helm, who plays Ridley. I mean, you know, the mechanic whose narration opens and closes the film. And, you know, I still go down to Economy Candy, which is a store about a mile south of here, and the only gum I chew is Beeman's. Why? Because Chuck Yeager's always asking Ridley, hey, Beeman's? Ridley, lend me a stick of Beeman's. Yeah, I got a stick. You know, so, I, love it. I, that, I, I do have some problems with some of the liberties that Kaufman took. They did. But I mean, book. I mean, especially with poor Lyndon Johnson. Yes, I know that you've, you have said that, and yeah. I, that is, I get that. He's not, he's portrayed as kind of cartoonish, yeah. which is the oh. one thing Johnson was not. And, was and cartoonish. The, whole, the whole thing between him and, and John Glenn um, being interviewed, you know. The yeah, with thing. Annie. Yeah. yeah, that had nothing to do with her stuttering, according to the book. It had to do with they had a contract with, I think, NBC. Right. So things a little more <laughs> oh, complicated really? yeah. than that. Oh, yeah. Ah, the truth revealed it's here. In the book, but it's, it's in Tom Wolfe's book. And, you know, some of the actresses playing the white, Kathy Baker as Mrs. Grissom mm-hmm. and Veronica Cartwright as... Uh, a very a, underrated no, actress. No, she's Miss, she's Betty Grissom. Kathy Baker's Louise Shepard. Veronica um, Cartwright, a very underrated Always actress. good. Always I like good. Her a lot. And who the hell had the idea to cast Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager? 
the the film's one acting nomination. Brilliant. I mean, and then Sam, and then uh, so he's great, and Chuck Yeager himself appears yes. in the uh, as a bartender at Poncho's. So uh, I mean, there's there's so so many great scenes. Um, the cross-cutting at the end when the astronauts are being wine to dine at their new home in Houston and, you know, they cut to Jaeger who's, you know, trying to attain this meaningless altitude record. You know, mm-hmm. he's the only one who still cares about that stuff. Um, but what I love about it is, you know, they pass over Jaeger, who is clearly the best pilot in the world, uh, because he doesn't have a college education. And so they, well, they picked... Also, wasn't it also because they saw him as being too independent? Yeah. Well, that too, but yeah, he. but he, if they wanted the best pilots, you know, they definitely would have. And this, the scenes where they're training and competing to be the astronauts have a nice mix of humor and, yeah. ser- and serious stuff. Yeah. But I love when Grissom loses his capsule and we see the scene at Poncho's and Jaeger defends him. Yeah. Jaeger says it takes a lot of guts to go up in a tin can that's probably going to explode underneath you. And he says, oh, Gus, he did all right. So even though the seven astronauts never see it, they've won Jaeger's respect, yeah. which yeah. is a huge step for us. And then the favors returned when at the at the gala in Houston, which is this big, you know, overblown Texas thing. Yeah. Someone comes up to Cooper, who's going to fly next. He's the last of the seven to fly. And they say, Gordo, who's the best pilot you ever saw? And that's a question that he has asked his wife, you know, in a a funny way, a dozen times in the film. And the answer is always, you're looking at him. So, uh, So the reporter says, you know, Gordo, who's the best pilot you ever saw? And he's about to give the pat answer. And then he's like, well, I've seen a lot of them. And a lot of them are just pictures on a wall in a place that doesn't exist anymore. But there was one once, and he's about to talk about Jaeger. Yeah. And that moment just gets me yeah. every time. I, I just, just beautiful. And I love the moment, even though it's not true, Michael, as you say. But I love the moment when the pilots who've been fighting with each other nonstop since the program started, you know, when they, when, when. They won't right. let LBJ in. Yeah. And, you know, they've all it been... It was a good scene. They've all been competing to be the next one, and they've chosen Glenn after Grissom. And, you know, they threaten Glenn. That, you know, it's like, well, you know, if she doesn't let LBJ in, you know, maybe we'll get someone else to fly this mission. And immediately, the other six of them step up and say, who are you going to get to fly? Yeah. The yeah. bond well, that was a great the moment. bond that they have created is just I have found so much of, of this film okay. moving. In Go your ahead. opinion, why wasn't it successful? Because I've I remember at the time they've got cover stories and Time yeah. and Newsweek. And I remember liking it a lot. I when, did too. When it first came out. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Got, I, I thought for sure it'd be a big hit. And it wasn't. No, it, it lost it, the money. It, right, it made it cost about twenty eight, twenty nine million, and made only about twenty or twenty one. And remember, there was all that talk that it was going to make John Glenn, Glenn the presidential president. candidate in eighty four, and he was yeah. a presidential candidate. Yeah, but, but um, not unsuccessfully. I yeah. mean, he lost the nomination to Mondale. So, <laughs> sorry, Minnesota. There no, you go. No, no, it's fine. So, I, I mean, it's a film that loses a well, lot. Why on do it. you think that? I don't know. 
I think people expected a more adventurous kind of film. I wonder if people were turned off by the film because they thought it might be political. Maybe. Oh, there were no stars. Possible. Possible. You know, there was no star director like with 2001. Um, it, not a lot of action, but I, I think it is... What's Kaufman doing today? Not much. Mm-hmm. He did after he did Henry and June. He did Rising Sun, you know, with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes oh, about yeah. Japan. I remember that. And yeah, yeah I'm sure he still worked, but never quite lived. But to paraphrase the last line of the film, for that in one brief moment in 1983, Phil Kaufman became the greatest director anybody ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go chew on my stick of Beeman's and pass it over to Magic Mike Edmund for our monthly necrology, which I understand is blissfully short. Yes, it is. Barry Humphreys, 89, Australian comedian and actor, appeared in almost 100 movies and television programs since 1958. Among them were Bedazzled, the 1967 Dudley Moore version, The Bliss of Mrs. Bottom, The Getting of Wisdom, Immortal Beloved, and Finally Nemo. But... Humphreys is best known for his creation of Dame Edna Everett. Dame Edna. Which he created in 1955. Dame Edna was once called the spawn of a menage a quatre involving Oscar Wilde, Salvador Dali, Auntie Mame, and Miss Piggy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Lovely. She would lampoon suburban pretensions, political correctness, uh, and a cult of celebrity. She appeared on her own talk show on NBC, which only lasted uh, three episodes, and appeared on many network talk shows as a guest. Also appeared three times in her own show on Broadway. Dame Edna would address her audience with a signature greeting, Hello, Possums. Possums. But then would be very cutting with various audience members. Addressing a lady in the front row, she would grin and say, I know, dear. I used to make my own clothes, too. (laughs) Ouch. <laughs> On talk shows, she would insult celebrities to their face. To Michael Bolton, she would say, You've had nine hit- hits this year on your website. <laughs> she had an advice column in Vanity Fair. He replied to a reader to a reader's query on whether to learn Spanish. Who speaks it that you are really desperate to talk to? The help? Your leaf blower? Study French or German, where there are at least a few books worth reading. Or if you're an American, try English. Uh, that was a furor <laughs> that led uh, Selma Hayek, uh, who had appeared on the cover that month. And she led that uh, protest and Dame Edna's column was soon discontinued. Now, i got to be honest with you. Also, she's very anti-gay or very anti-trans. She considers people who are transsexualists transsexuals as sad gay men who mutilate themselves. Wow. Yeah, not a, not what you'd call a, a, a unexpected liberal. I saw one of her shows. I didn't find her all that funny. I mean, maybe it was me. I just thought, eh. Coming from a transvestite, I mean, you know, it's but it's complicated. Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah, a little odd. But uh, he was straight. He had married a couple times, had several children. Anyway, from the overrated to the fantastic, great Harry, Harry Belafonte. Oh, oh yes. my God. Yeah. 96, singer, actor, civil rights activist. Now, despite his fame as a singer, 
he only made 12 movies. Yeah. Theatrical movies in a span of 65 years. After he became the first male actor of color to receive a Tony Award, Best Featured Actor for the Review, John Murray Anderson, Anderson's Almanac, he made his film debut in 1953 in Bright Road which uh, co-starred Dorothy Dandridge. Hmm. His next film was for Otto Preminger, Carmen Jones, Carmen Jones also yeah. with Dandridge. But he turned down Preminger's offer to star in Porgy and Bess, feeling that the role and the opera was racist. Sidney Poitier did it. His three movies after Carmen Jones were Robert Rosen's Island in the Sun, a film that suggested an interracial affair with Joan Fontaine right. and was banned in the South. Nat- naturally. The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, a three-character film about the aftermath of a nuclear holocaust which co-starred Inger Stevens and Mel Ferrer. Hmm. And, this was one of my favorites, Robert Wise's Odds Against Tomorrow, a crime heist drama with Robert Ryan, Ed Begley, Gloria Graham, and Shelley Winters. I, I thought this was one of his best films, and you can't get it streaming anywhere. I hate it. shows on TCM. That's where I saw it. And I saw it recently. Keep your DVDs, people. I did. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. The one with Joan Fontaine is kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's. it's, It doesn't all quite work, but but the story is really interesting. Mm -hmm. James Mason is also in it. Yeah. Okay, and then he dropped out of films. I'm only trying to talk about films because if we d- yeah. uh, talk about all of his accomplishments, we'll be You'll here, be here for forever. another two hours. Yeah, and Amazing human being. Then he stopped making films until 1970 when he produced and co-starred in The Angel Levine, the only English language film directed by Jan Kadar, who five years earlier had won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar for The Shop on Main Street. Ah, now, in Angel Levine, he plays a guardian angel who comes down to Earth to help a poor Jewish tailor, played by Zero Mostel, and his dying wife, Ida Casima, also from the shop of Main Street in her only English language role. It's based on a story by Bernard Malman, and it's a real find. It is very, very good. Turner has it on occasionally, and I hope, I trust Turner's going to do a night of his films. Oh, I'm sure they will, yeah. Um, and I, I, they, they will probably show that one. Uh, but it was not a successful film. Then in 1972, he made Buck and the Preacher, mm-hmm. which was directed and co-starred uh, Belafonte's friend Sidney Portier. This was thought to be a black rift on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I remember liking it when I saw it. I saw it when it came out. Then, after 1974's Uptown Saturday Night, right, also directed by Portier and co-starring Bill Cosby, Flip Wilson, Richard Pryor, uh, uh, and Portier, it was a sort of a satire of The Godfather. And then Belafonte didn't act in a f- another film until 1996, hmm. where he played a gangster in Robert Altman's Kansas City. Oh. Did you ever see that? Yes, yes. once, yeah. when he came out. Uh, he appeared in him, as himself in Altman's The Player and um, Pret-a-Porter. But in this, he plays Seldom Seen, a ruthless gangster in the 1940s. And Belafonte won the New York Film Critics Award for that film for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. Did not get an Oscar nomination. His final two films were in small roles in Emilio Estevez's film on JFK, Bobby, 
And this is civil rights activist Jerome Turner and Spike Lee's Black Klansman, Black Klansman in, in uh, 2018. And he did get the um, um, Gene Herschel. He's wonderful Humanitarian. Black, Black Klansman. Yes, he is. When he yes. tells the story about his friend being that, lynched. That's, 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 my, uh, that's my favorite yeah. Spike Lee. I, I have to say that when I, I had heard he had, and he was what, 96? 96. God bless him. When I heard that he had died, I felt. I felt really, really sad. Yeah, it's a loss. I, it I is, just, but it's ninety six. Ninety six, <laughs> but still, I kept saying, "Well, it's ninety six, but I still, I felt so sad because this yeah. was just such, such a, a great, important human being." Yeah, but I, I was amazed that he only had made twelve films. Yeah, he didn't make that many. No, movies. he didn't make, but in such a <laughs> long period. But, of but time. also, it's. I mean, his early career was really important. Yes. He made, he made a big impact. But and there he, were a lot of t- TV import, uh, appearances, too, that were controversial. Right. Uh, he was on Batulia Clark's show, and then yeah. got banned in the South. Didn't he host... He was on Julie Andrews. I just saw something about him hosting The Tonight Show for a week. Yes, he did. In 68. And, that was, and yep. had a yes. really interesting... I don't, I've yeah. never seen those. That yeah. must be amazing. Yeah. All right. They might be on YouTube. We'll have to check that out. Yeah, because a lot of those room. Tonight Shows are... Yeah, because he had... He had Martin Luther King on one night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, In fact, I, and he had Robert Kennedy on one night. Right. Not too long before both of them were killed. So. Yeah. Right. All right. Anyway, so that's it. That's our necrology. So we move on to America's favorite segment. That's right. It's John Meyer's patented quote quiz. Johnny, what do you got for us this month? Okay. So the quote from our last episode was, I watched a snail crawl along the edge of a straight razor. That's my dream. That's my nightmare. Crawling, slithering along the edge of a straight razor and surviving. (laughs) It was Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now, 1979, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And speaking of special effects and CGI, everything you see in Apocalypse Now was real. Yep. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when you see that the planes go by in frame and everything, it's like there were real planes that they flew to go right there. I mean, it take effort to take the everything just right. So. All right, we have to be careful of compl- sounding like old people. But yes, yeah. the, the problem with CGI is that when anything's possible, nothing matters. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a good point. Anyway, I'd, I'd rather watch the thirty-three King Kong with all its, you know, chunky special effects <laughs> than any one of the ones done with CGI. I mean, I, that's miraculous. But I digress. Yes. Quote. So the new quote is: "Those are harsh words to throw at a man, especially when he's walking out of your bedroom." All right. Doesn't immediately leap to mind, but I will. I will think on it, as they say. And uh, if you want to find out the answer to that and many other of life's powerful questions, please uh, don't hesitate to check out our website www.vintagesand.com. You'll get the quote out. You'll get some uh, more information about the films we were talking about, and uh, we are very much interested in your ideas and suggestions for shows to come as we approach number 50 torn curtain speaking of which (laughs) (laughs) totally have to do torn curtain i just don't want to see it again our episode 47 our june episode is going to be we have done two sponsor i need a sponsor um Two, uh, we've done two uh, episodes specifically devoted to not one film but to one director. Episode um, 
27, I think it was, uh, was on Bang Jun-ho, mm-hmm. and one was on Chloe Zhao. Um, that was, that was, I think, 38, 39, yeah. or one of those. So we're going to go back in time a little bit to a director that Michael always mentions and someone who deserves a lot more attention than he has gotten over the years. A very odd and interesting career and a life, and that is Joseph Losey. Born in America, but known for the films he made in Britain. He was forced to flee to Britain um, because of HUAC and McCarthyism. And so we are going to try to, not that it needs rehabilitation, but we're going to try to bring Joseph Losey back into the spotlight where I think he belongs more than he is. He's been kind of forgotten you know, with the, that group of great 50s and 60s directors. So we will be exploring the films of Joseph Losey. Um, remember that we are available on all platforms, specifically Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, and still working on the YouTube thing, I promise. Um, as I said, please check out the website. Leave us your feedback and suggestions. Um, we uh, we hope you uh, stay well, stay safe. Don't get too crazy out there. Um, play a drinking game for the number of times our last president is convicted of something over the next month. Hopefully it'll be a few. And our greatest wish for you, as ever, is that your favorite films may always be streaming.